What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Dear Governor is a production of iHeartMedia and Three Mutts Media. If you are moved by Jarvis Masters and his 30-year struggle on San Quentin's death row, and you'd like to support his cause, please consider signing a petition on his behalf. Visit freejarvis.org slash podcast to sign your name to an open letter to California Governor Gavin Newsom. Dear Governor Newsom. Dear Mr. Governor Newsom. This is an open letter to Governor Gavin Newsom. Dear Governor Newsom. Craig Haney is a social psychologist and a professor at the University of California, Santa Cruz, renowned for his work on the front lines of the criminal justice system. His groundbreaking research on capital punishment and the psychological impact of imprisonment and isolation lends great credence to the fact that proactive prevention is far more effective than reactive punishment when it comes to reducing criminal behavior. In what capacity did you work on Jarvis Masters' trial back in the late 80s? In Jarvis's case, I was in a position that I'm often in in capital cases, uh, which is uh, I'm the person whose job it is to try to tell the client's life story. It's come to be called a social historian. In those days, I'm not sure whether that term was around. I don't do clinical assessments. I I don't diagnose people. I rather try to understand their biographical history as a way of understanding the path or the course of their life, to put it in context for the jurors so the jurors can understand the various experiences and events and, in many instances, traumas that affected a capital defendant in the course of his or her life so that they can appreciate it, hopefully feel some compassion, uh, gain some understanding or insight, that they otherwise wouldn't have without that story being told in as much detail as possible. I asked Jarvis about his early memories of Professor Haney. He was one of those people that initially I thought would not get it. You know, 
He was one of those people that I said earlier who were hired to come here and describe my life story. This professor with all these plaques on the wall. And, you know, I was not who I am today. So, and I didn't like people with plaques on their wall because of my childhood experience, you know, these social workers, and they really messed me up. But he did get it. Mm -hmm. And that's what surprised me about him. He did get it, you know. He wasn't writing reports to, you know, show his expertise. He was writing his reports and giving testimony to what he believed was the truth about what was going on in my life. Mm-hmm. Um, and, of course, you know, I check and see every word he ever wrote about me, you know. And yeah. as I kept reading things, you know, I, I was amazed that this white man can talk about things that I never thought he had the experience to know about. But he did. Yeah. He did. My conversation with Professor Haney continues. When you first met Jarvis, how long did it take for you to garner a clear picture of of the man himself and his story? Well, his story was something that took me a very long time to fully grasp or understand because it, re- it required me not just to spend a lot of time with Jarvis, which I did do and, and, and which which I which I benefited from greatly and, and, and frankly, very much enjoyed. I. I I got got to know him well, although not right away, and I'll get to that in a second. Part of the task of understanding the course of someone's life is certainly to talk with them as much as you can and open them up as much as possible about their life, but also to talk to as many other people as possible about them. So I traveled to Los Angeles a number of times. I met his family. I spent a lot of time with him. I went into the neighborhoods where he grew up. We talked to teachers, neighbors, people who knew him, uh, really to try to develop an understanding of what his life had been as he was growing up. And then also as he had increasing contacts with the criminal justice system, um, what those places were like, what they were like for him. I had already known a fair amount about the California prison system is, is part of part of how I got into doing this kind of work. Um, was that I, uh, while I was still a graduate student uh, at Stanford, I was one of the researchers in the Stanford prison experiment. And Mm. as a young student, that experience really reoriented my entire professional life. So I began to study prisons, real prisons, not simulated prisons, um, while I was still in graduate school. And so by the time I graduated from Stanford with with a PhD, and then I, I went to law school. I had a lot of familiarity with the California prison system. I studied it. I'd worked on cases already, some constitutional challenges to conditions of confinement in the California prison system. And so I had expertise in how people are shaped and affected by contact with the criminal justice system. Many people who end up in death penalty trials have been in the system earlier times in their life, and they've been affected and in some sense damaged by that system, contrary to public opinion. The prison system does not and has not for decades rehabilitated people. It's not 
been devoted to that, sadly. But it does do other things to them, uh, and it can make whatever problems they enter the system with worse. And in any event, whether they do that or not, whether those environments do it or not, they're very difficult places in which to live. And I think in cases where a death penalty client has had problems in prison or jail, and certainly in a case where crime was committed in a prison or a jail, the crime for which they are on trial, it's important to be able to explain to the jury what it's like to live in that kind of an environment, mm. what it does to you, what kind of survival strategies you have to adopt, and how people in prison find themselves doing things in prison that they would not otherwise do under any other circumstances because of the contingencies that they face on a, on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. So for me, in Jarvis's case, certainly, but in other cases as well, that ends up being part of the life story. A lot of times our clients' lives are lived partly in families and neighborhoods, but partly also in different parts of the criminal justice system. Mm-hmm. And so that part of the story was important for me to tell in Jarvis's case also. The, the cradle to uh, to death row pipeline. Exactly. Yeah. No, exactly. And I mean, his, his case was a perfect example of that. And Jarvis speaks to the fact that back in the 80s, as opposed to now, that the prison, San Quentin, was such a such a hellscape back then, much more violent than it is now. And and that kind of did, did that play into your evaluation of him? It did. I had been involved in lawsuits um, about conditions of confinement in San Quentin, about the overcrowding in San Quentin. The, uh, the use of what in those days were called lockup units or uh, uh, management control units in, in those days. San Quentin had an enormous one. There was a tremendous amount of violence. I've been in the adjustment center many times. And I mean, San Quentin today, with the exception of death row, there's no relationship to San Quentin in those days. It was a justifiably notorious maximum security prison in the California system. It and Folsom were, were the, as notorious as any prisons in the United States at the time. And so part of my job was to try to explain that to, to Jarvis's jury. And, and he, he, of course, helped me do that. But you asked me earlier how quickly did I come to know him and, and, um, and I understand him. And it was uh, eventually I got to know him very well and I, and I felt very close to him. And I think we had a good relationship and good rapport, but it didn't start off that way. Uh, (laughs) uh, Jarvis, in the initial stages of my involvement in the case, did not want anything to do with psychologists at all. And um, Michael Satras, his attorney, had sent, how shall I put it, a conventional psychologist into evaluate Jarvis before I went to see him. Uh And I, I don't even remember who it was who went in to see him. But that person did a, a very kind of conventional workup, and it, it, it was a kind of a superficial analysis of who Jarvis was. He looked at his record. He made a lot of assumptions about what that ref- record meant about Jarvis as a person. He reached uh, a number of, um, you know, I don't know, questionable conclusions about Jarvis as a person. It was obvious that he didn't that he didn't understand at all who Jarvis was. It was obvious even to me, and I hadn't yet met Jarvis. So Michael gave me a copy of this report before I went to see Jarvis. And I read it, and I said to him, Michael, 
you want me to follow this? I mean, this is gonna this is gonna be a very difficult second act because <laughs> you know he's not gonna be happy to see another person who's coming in with the label of psychologist. And Michael said, Well, you just you know explain to him that you're different, you know, you're a different kind of a psychologist. And I said, Well, yeah, of course, but it's gonna be it's gonna be awkward in the beginning. Anyway, marched over to San Quentin and went went in to see Jarvis. And Jarvis came out and sat down across from me with a scowl on his face and sized me up and 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 I'm and I launched into my I'm um this is the kind of psychologist I am. I'm not here to diagnose you. I'm not here to put you in a cubby hole. I want to understand you. I want to get to know you. And as I was talking to him, as I had in the middle of my spiel about how he should talk to me, because I was different from this other person, he very methodically began to tear that report up <laughs> in little pieces. <laughs> and he made a very neat fairly good sized little pile of these little pieces of that report and then he pushed the pile across the table to me until it was sitting in front of me and i'm still not quite finished with my explanation to him about why i'm different from these other folks and he looked at me and he said stop stop that that and he pointed to the pile is what i think of you people <laughs> and that's how our relationship began. <laughs> nice. <laughs> so it was, yeah, it was one of the more dramatic uh, opening uh, moments in in my relationship with a client. And um, I just laughed. I started laughing, and I said, "I just want to tell you that was the best." <laughs> <laughs> I said, "I've had a lot of clients uh, up until this point, but that right, that move right there was the best one I've ever seen." <laughs> We both started laughing. I mean, you know, and, and I said, I don't blame you. If somebody had written that about me, I would have ripped it up like that, too. Yeah. Said, That's not what I'm going to do. So I just pushed the stuff off the table. I said, let's start from scratch, okay? It, it's not going to end with that. It's going to end with something different. And I, I want to get to know you the way this person didn't. Jarvis Masters on his impression of Professor Craig Haney. He didn't say so, I don't think. He might have. But he knew I was innocent. Yeah. You know, and, you know, when someone's in trouble like I was, you look for someone to distrust you to be, to, in their own way, not in my way, but in their own way, recognize me being innocent. And he did. You know, mm -hmm. he did. And he wrote in a way that he was describing an innocent person. So it became, you know, my champion, you know, someone who I knew and understood to know the truth. And I gave him major props for that. Major props, you know. Did you sit with him a lot? Did you tell him your story from your point of view? Yes. What he did was, it was stacks of stuff that he had to investigate and read to define who I was to a courtroom, to a jury. And I did trust him when he did take you know, when he did testify, but what he did was he did, he took all that junk and he made me a human being. He made me out of a human being that I never had that. Oh, that, that, that person who can do that on their own terms, you mm -hmm. know, uh, what, 
everything makes, you know, most people, you know, they would come to like me because of who I was and blah, blah, blah. But for someone to read all that junk, you know, and a lot of the junk was truth. You know, my mother was this and my father was that. But he gave such a, 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 a uh, narrative to that that really, really gave me the idea that I know the truth that I can trust this man. Up next, with over four decades devoted to the study and enhancement of the criminal justice system, having worked tirelessly for the defense of countless imprisoned clients, Professor Craig Haney explains why Jarvis's case continues to haunt him to this day. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bop Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Pluma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Since the 1970s, social psychologist Craig Haney has worked on cases of countless criminal defendants, constructing the fullness of their life stories in order to provide juries with more than just a simple snapshot into the violence of their alleged crimes. I asked him why, after 30 years, Jarvis Masters' case continues to haunt him to this day. It haunts me because, you know, I've worked on many of these cases over the years. I've worked on many of them before Jarvis's case, and I've worked on many, many of them since then. And, you know, in, in some cases, no matter what you do, the case is overwhelming, and for various reasons, you can't overcome the amount of aggravation that's been presented and you can't quite get through to the jury about the humanity of, of the defendant and how and why 
the things that happened to him in his life changed and affected him in ways that helped to account for the things that he did. Events and experiences, none, none of which he chose, but which happened to him and, and which he reacted to and, and reacted to in understandable ways. Maybe ways that you or I or the jury might not have reacted to, but nonetheless, they're understandable. You can understand why a person in, in his position, in the defendant's position, would act the way he did, not just in the crime for which they were trial, but in other things that they had done in their life. And I really thought that in Jarvis's case, there was a really compelling story that needed to be told and that, that if the jury heard that story, that they, that they would understand his life in the same way that I did and, and show compassion and reach a life rather than a death verdict. We, you know, we faced a number of obstacles in the case. There was, a, I, I thought, an extraordinarily aggressive prosecutor who I frankly thought did things that bordered on unethical. Mm-hmm. She threatened at one point in the case to arrest me because she said I was practicing psychology without a license. Oh, yes. And which was a bizarre. It's the first time I'd ever heard this. And uh, she sprung this on me when I was on the witness stand in front of the judge and, and so on, not in front of the jury, but told the judge that she felt duty bound to form the court that if I testified the way she thought I was going to testify, that she was prepared to arrest me and that I should get legal counsel um, uh, because I was going to be in custody by the end of the day. Yeah, no, in Michael Satras's closing statements, he comes to your defense in that regard, that that your experience is above and beyond what is necessary. Yeah, so it was the first time I'd, I'd ever heard this, as I recall, and so it was a little unsettling, but she, you know, she sort of pulled it out of her hat and knowing, I think, in her heart of hearts, knowing full well that I that she could not arrest me for this, and I was not violating the law. It, professors don't have a license any more than a police officer needs a license to make observations about human behavior. Right. A, you know, you have a, a, I wasn't providing treatment for Jarvis. I wasn't providing a diagnosis. I wasn't doing anything that was beyond my area of, of, of even by that point, fairly significant expertise. But that was the kind of that was a, that's the tenor of that case. I mean, that just that kind of trick, for example. And, I, you know, I think it unsettled the judge. Uh, J- judge Savitt didn't really know what to do with that. She obviously wasn't going to let me be ele- arrested, but she, she wasn't sure what this was all about. And so she, you know, frankly, handicapped my testimony. Mm-hmm. Um, she, it, it, she put limits on what it was I was allowed to say, it, limits that I never that I had not been subjected to before and that I frankly have never been subjected to since. And, and it, you know, just really overreached, I thought, in a, I thought, ethically questionable way. And so we were, we couldn't tell the story the way we wanted. And I think it was, it haunts me because of the outcome, of course, because of the kind of person that I knew, uh, that I had come to know Jarvis to be. Explain that person that you came to know. Even in those days, there was a stability and a solid center to, to Jarvis Masters, the sheer amount of trauma to which he was exposed, both outside and inside the prison system. Trauma that he experienced even before he got to prison, certainly trauma that he experienced once inside, was profound. And most people who have been subjected to that 
manifest a kind of inner instability around it. It's perfectly understandable. It's the, the consequence of trauma. Jarvis had, had struggled, really, and managed to make coherence out of his life and out of his self, you know, in a way that, that was just extraordinarily impressive. And he was, even in those days, an, an obviously very unusual, impressive in terms of how he carried himself, impressive in terms of how he dealt with the things that were happening to him. There was a, a kind of inner balance and stoicism to, to just a, a kind of a sense of character from him. And had, by the end of that case, a, a lot of genuine personal affection for him, you know, one human being to another, not just as a, as a client in a case. I mean, obviously, you form relationships with all your clients. But in, in his case, I mean, knowing what he had been through, in his life. I mean, it's my job to understand those things and, and to study it, really. And then to be able to see him act with such dignity and equanimity in our day-to-day interactions and watching how he dealt with the way that, you know, the things that were happening in the case and the, the gyrations of the prosecutor and so on. It, I left it with a lot, of, the case with a lot of respect for him and was devastated when, when, when the jury returned a death verdict. And was equally devastated when Judge Sabat refused to set it aside, Um, which I don't, you know, I I didn't know Beverly Sabat. I, she, you know, she had a decent reputation as a judge. She had acted, I thought, responsibly in a case that had been brought about conditions at San Quentin. So she was not naive about, uh, about that environment. And I, I really did think that she would see, as I did, the jury's verdict as a mistake. And set it aside. And I, you know, I wrote a letter uh, to her on, you know, before the actual final sentencing to try to persuade her. But she, um, she was unmovable uh, or unmoved. I don't know if she was unmovable, but she was unmoved in this case. And I don't, to this day, I don't know why. And, and, and that, that was the, the, the second really profoundly disappointing outcome in the case. I mean, the first one was the jury verdict. And and then the second one was Judge Sabat's unwillingness to overturn that verdict, which I thought was clearly wrong. When the jury came back with the verdict, did you have any inclination that it would be death? I was feeling positive, guardedly positive, because I thought that even though we had been handicapped in terms of what we were able to present, that we had presented enough, mm-hmm. that, that, the, that the story we had presented was compelling enough that the jury would appreciate Jarvis's life and they would weigh it decisively in the balance. So I was guardedly optimistic. I mean, I, you know, I certainly knew how hard the prosecutor was pressing for death and, and the lengths to which she went in order to achieve that verdict. But I thought, nonetheless, we had done enough. Yeah. I hoped anyway, we had done enough. And then, as I said, I hoped a- after the jury's verdict that we that the judge saw what we, what we what we saw and what we knew about Jarvis, she saw enough of it to know that the jury had made a mistake. Right. I was very hopeful. I, you know, again, maybe naively so, but I was hopeful that she would do the right thing. Mm-hmm. And was in. I was in the courtroom that I attended the sentencing hearing, uh, hoping that she would rule from the bench. That she looked at the facts of the case. She was present, of course, for the entire trial. 
and that she considered all the evidence and decided that, that life was the appropriate sentence. And of course, she didn't do that. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bop Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Pluma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds to Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. You have a new book that's out this year called Criminality in Context, Psychological Foundations of Criminal Justice Reform, and it analyzes 40 years of research um, into the root causes of criminal behavior. You make the argument that meaningful criminal justice reform depends on changing the public narrative about who commits the crimes. How do you change a public narrative? (laughs) That seems like a big job. Yeah, it is a big job. You know, I think, you know... I'm a professor, so we write books and we uh, accumulate evidence. And so that book is, a, I view it as a kind of a building block in the process of changing this narrative. So what I try to do in that book is to pull together all of the evidence uh, about the issues, a lot of the issues that we've been talking about, that people are changed and affected in early stages in their lives, that people who experience trauma who experience abuse and deprivation, who are acted upon negatively by the institutions in our society, schools, foster care system, juvenile justice institutions, jails, prisons, Mm -hmm. all of which uh, oftentimes inflict trauma rather than treatment or rehabilitation, that people's lives are profoundly changed and affected by those experiences in the course of their life. And that, and that people commit crimes for reasons, and those are the reasons. Mm-hmm. They don't commit crimes because they're inherently defective. They commit crimes because their lives have been defective in certain respects. Mm-hmm. 
They've been mistreated. Oftentimes they've been mistreated by parents who themselves are dealing with trauma. So, you know, much trauma in the child abuse literature is intergenerational. Um, you know, the parents who mistreat their children have typically themselves been mistreated. Yeah. Well, this doesn't, you know, this doesn't, this doesn't come out in a vacuum. And they live, as Jarvis did, in communities that are uncaring, um, where they're exposed to violence at very early ages. Um, you know, many of my clients are dodging bullets. You know, at the time, other kids are selling Girl Scout cookies. We tend in the legal system to take a kind of simplistic view of the nature of crime. And, and, and we view it as a simple choice that people make. Prosecutors are fond of this, this particular narrative. I call it in, in the book, I call it the crime master narrative, that people simply make a choice. Mm-hmm. And that all of us are equally autonomous and free. And we're all encumbered by our past. And we're all, therefore, equally capable of making one choice or another. And if somebody commits a crime, then they're just freely choosing to do that the same way anybody else would freely choose to go to the grocery store or get a PhD in psychology. It's just a choice. Mm -hmm. And it's nowhere near that simple. And we know it. The science knows it. So I filled that book with all the science to the contrary (laughs) that basically lays out in careful detail exactly what we know about exactly why people engage in crime. There is actually no mystery to it. It has to do with the with their life stories. It has to do with the lives that they've lived, the experiences that they've had, many if not most of which they had no choice over, and we're not given the tools to overcome. Mm-hmm. And, and instead, we're subjected to institutions that made the issues worse, not better, um, all, and ultimately including prisons. Uh, and so that's the, you know that's the story that we that we need to come to understand so much better in this society. You have to stop demonizing people who engage in crime, and the average citizen has to realize that somebody who engages in a crime is just like them, except for the life they've lived. How do we change the narrative though across the country? It just just engage in conversations like this. Is it well, legislative you know- or? Inch by inch. Inch by inch, I'm afraid. I mean, I have, you know, uh, you, you work in whatever arena you're, you're, you know, you're privileged enough to work in. So you have a podcast. I have a classroom. We try to write. We try to, we try to talk to as many people as we can. Um, we try to nudge the media to tell the story better, um, to, to, to try to humanize everybody who goes through the system because they are, we all start off in the same place. And why we end up in different places because of the things that have happened to us along the way. We all intuitively understand that about our children, right? Yeah. So we we know that we need to protect our our own children from these bad events and traumas Mm -hmm. because we know it can shape their lives in negative ways. Somehow there's a disconnect when we look at other people's children (laughs) and then or other people's children grown up. Yeah. And don't understand that those same consequences that we worry might have affected our own children, so we protect them from the traumas that might lead in that direction, um, have had that impact on, on, on other people who weren't protected. Right. Um, and, I mean, that's, just, that's a story that I think has to be told again and again and again. In that book, I, I, I wanted to lay out, partly for the public, 
but also partly for the legal system, which systematically ignores this. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it's the, you know, it's the legal system that acts as though we're all equally autonomous and free and are going to judge, are going to judge Jarvis's life the same way they're going to judge my life when the two lives were fundamentally different through no fault or doing of our own, right? Yeah. I mean, and that system steadfastly refuses to take into account what we know about why people do what they do and why they end up in the positions they end up in. And so that's another reason why I try to amass as much information and, yeah. and as much data as I could uh, about what we know about all aspects of people's lives and how all of our lives are the accumulation of the things that have happened to us in these various sectors of our life. Jarvis is such a fascinating and wonderful story of success, just that he's maintained that core. And so he's kind of an ideal archetype in that respect. You know, I mean, the fact that he's been able to publish books and, and tell his personal story. And did, did you read um, David Sheff's book, The Buddhist on Death Row? Yes, yeah. um, just such a beautiful way to show that these are real people in there with depths of heart and soul. And, and, and in many respects, as extraordinary as Jarvis is, and he is, he's extraordinary. And I recognized him as extraordinary even many years ago, as I told you, when I, when I first got to know him. There are wonderful human qualities to all of the people in prison. We just don't get to know them. Yeah. And, you know, Jarvis's unique gifts, I mean, he, he, is, he is extraordinary. And I don't want to suggest that he's, there's anything at all average about him. He's not. <laughs> But he, he is, his unique gifts is that he's legible. He's so extraordinary that his, his uniqueness and his wonderful human traits are legible to other people because yeah. he has these other talents. But the other people in prison have these traits and qualities as well. They're just not as legible. They're just mm -hmm. not as visible to other people. But it doesn't mean they're not there. And it doesn't mean if given the opportunity to demonstrate them or exercise them, they would not be able, be able to do so. Of course, of course. Well, Craig, Professor Haney, thank you, thank you, thank you so very much. Um, I've been talking with Jarvis. He, he's doing well. You know, he had COVID. I do, um, I do. And, uh, I do but he's, he's on the mend and he's in very good spirits and he's really, really excited about the Kirkland and Alice team. There's seven or eight of them and they've been very vigilant and he feels well represented and I think he's optimistic about what's going to happen in the next year or so. Great. Great. Well, by all means, give him my regards. I will. I absolutely will. They've contacted me about the case and, and I've agreed to work with them. Uh, oh, on great. It. Good. Okay. 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 All right. Bye-bye. Appreciate it. Bye-bye. Next week, the practice of solitary confinement goes by many names, including disciplinary confinement, security housing, and restricted housing. All are euphemisms to soften the harsh and torturous reality of solitary. Jarvis shares how he was able to survive for 22 years locked away in a 9x4 cell 23 to 24 hours a day. This episode was written and produced by Donna Fazari and myself, Corny Cole. Our theme song, Sentenced, is compliments of the band Stick Figure from their album Set in Stone. Stu Sternbach composed the original music. Nate Dufort did the sound design. For more information on Jarvis and to find out how you can follow his case and support his cause, please visit 
freejarvis.org. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bop Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home.